0: What I'm hoping to do this morning is wrap up, unless there are things that pop up that you you want to talk about or have particular texts in the Bible that you want to like examine or have examined, uh, this would kind of be wrapping up our very long uh, series on the Canons of Dort and the Five Points of Calvinism, which derive from, of course, the Canons of Dort. And I had in mind, at least to, to start here, we've gone through... You know, a handful of passages here, and I guess kind of skipping week, and week here and week there, but texts that are very often put forward by Christians, thinking, well, you believe that God is sovereign in election, that he chooses unconditionally, based upon his own will, not upon anything foreseen in us, and, and there's this reality of reprobation where God has, has passed over some in his grace or has chosen not to be gracious to them and leave them in their sins and, and punish them for their sins. And some Christians will say, well, yeah, but doesn't the Bible say that God wants everyone to be saved? Doesn't, God, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus died for everyone, and not just for the elect, and so on? So we've handled a handful of passages, the kind of big daddies that come out, uh, 2 Peter 3.9, 1 Timothy 2, and oftentimes John chapter 3, uh, from John 3.16. So we've looked at those, and one of the things with those passages in particular is when you look at them carefully, it's pretty obvious what they're saying. Right? If you carefully read through and understand what the passage it's, it's, not, it's not a great mystery to figure out what it's saying, and it's not saying what Armenian friends want it to say. Yeah, that's, with, with, with those passages, I think that's clear and obvious. If you just take time to look and work through the passage, say, oh, it's not saying what this guy is saying, it's saying when he's quoting it at me, that kind of things. So, but I want to turn here as we close to what I think are simply the hardest passages for a, a Calvinistic point of view, in particular with the desire of God, how... We would say, well, God has, from all eternity, decreed that he will save the elect. And he sent his son to save the elect. And so there's the whole kind of apparatus of, you know, Calvinistic thought or soteriology that wraps around all that. But there are there are a couple passages in Ezekiel, in particular, that um, I want to look at after a running start and get a running start. But this, it's Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33 of the two, the two uh, chapters we'll be looking at. But I want to get a little bit of a running start um, so that we can... Maybe have a framework or a broadened framework to handle and understand as best we can what, what these texts are saying. There are varying but connective, distinctive aspects to the cataclysmic work of Jesus Christ. Okay. There are lots of things Jesus did and accomplished um, in, his, in his work, in his work directly, his life and death and resurrection uh, and ascension and pouring out of the Spirit and, and the return—all the, the great work of Christ has a number of dimensions to it that are all related, but they vary. They're not the same thing. We—we—and um, be clear, I think as we walk through it, um, one one example of this that we maybe doesn't come to mind very often when we're thinking about the work of Christ is Jesus Christ rearranged the cosmos. He—he God in the flesh. That's that's a new thing. We've had we've had God kind of show up in the past a number of times. We can call them theophanies or Christophanies and things like that, where it's a showing of God, but it's not incarnation. It's not God becoming man and man forever. Two distinct natures and one person forever. Right? That's that that's a unique uh, act of God in Christ Jesus, and that's part of this transitioning and changing the cosmos where Jesus as He's done his work on earth and is received back into heaven, reigns at the Father's right hand as a man, a human being, the God-man. Okay, well that puts him over all the angels and everything. Now we have man over all the other things in creation, in Christ Jesus. And then as he pours out his spirit on earth and begins to build his church, uh, that, that transforms things as well. So we're in Christ Jesus, and there's this kind of cosmic changing of the way things are. Um, another aspect of that, it's a it's, it's related those are all related is uh, when Jesus comes and his cross work is done especially as he's ascended and poured out his spirit he's moved all the work of God into what we might call a beginning to be realized eschatology an end times that started right that Jesus has begun something here that wasn't that hadn't begun before he came and did his work so there's we say at least a partially realized or beginning to be realized eschatology in the work of Jesus even in the earthly ministry of Jesus Uh, but particularly after his earthly ministry is done and he's enthroned in heaven and pours out his spirit, that this is kicking, and this is eschatological reality that he's bringing into earthly history. And he will complete it, right? But he started it. So there are just a couple examples right there of Jesus doing stuff that's not directly or singularly focused on the salvation of the elect. But of course those things have to do with the salvation of the elect as well. Like I said, they're tied together, Though they aren't necessarily the same thing, right? There are dimensions. One more dimension that uh, should be clear to us. Let's see if I can just read what I have here. It might be better than what I would say. Redemption of the land from which man was taken, and which he, is, he has polluted by the shedding of blood, idolatry, and all manner of wickedness. Okay, so God made the, like, the land, the, the ground, the earth, right? That thing out there, not this, because we built this on the land, but, you know, I'm getting that, the terra firma. Um, okay, it got, and then the cosmos, the whole order of everything to go around it, right? That seems to be pretty much the shape you get in Scripture, right? Just for a free note for you, the, the cosmology of, hey, we're this little speck floating around this other speck on this kind of medium-sized star and this and that and this galaxy over here, and this, that has nothing to do with Scripture. Zero, okay? It's an entirely different view of the physical universe than the Scripture gives us entirely. Okay, so just keep that in mind. He might say, oh, well, God didn't mean to give us an understanding of the shape of the cosmos in the Scriptures. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. But he does say that this place is the center of what he's doing. Right? He sent his son here. This is where redemption is. This is the focal point because God's made it that way. And, uh, and I think that's reflected in the cosmology and the way things appear to be set up in the Bible. Anyway, this, the ordered reality that God made is suffering under a curse, in particular the ground, because of the sin of man. Well, Christ came to redeem the earth. Okay? And we read about that in Romans 8. The earth is just waiting, waiting for us to, to get rid of our sinful flesh and be fully redeemed, and it will be fully redeemed, and, right? So, Christ did that. And Christ will do that, right? So that's the, that's, the, that's the whole created cosmos we're in. Christ is redeeming it, and the very ground itself is polluted with our sin. Christ is, I'm redeeming that too. Okay? So just take a step back and oftentimes when we're talking about the work of Christ, we're thinking, oh, for the elect, right? Christ came and bore the sins of his people. Christ came and died for those sins and was punished. Uh, he himself was righteous and just, so it's the just for the unjust. And, and that's all absolutely true, right? That's And that's kind of the centerpiece, but it's not the only piece of what Christ is doing, right? So there's, there's, there are broader dimensions. They're all related in Christ to his redemption. So does that kind of make some sense, or does it you know, kind of draw any questions that uh, idea is just, again, we're just trying to get an introductory slide into, into Ezekiel 18 and 33. Okay, so, that to say, now, when we're talking about either God's call to repentance, which is what we're going to look at here, or just his call to the whole world to say, come and be saved, come to my son. Um, there are dimensions of the way Christ has done things and what he, the impacts of his death and resurrection and so on, that we're barely familiar with, right? We kind of focus in on... On really on the the elect, God, Christ dying for the elect. That's what this series has been about with the the Canons of Dort. And Calvinism is like, well, there's this very clear focus in the Scripture of God choosing a people, God sending a son for those people, God sending a spirit to redeem and apply the work of Christ to those people and preserving them to the end and all that kind of stuff. We've talked four months about that. But there are other dimensions of it as well. And one hint, and this is 1 Timothy 4. I'll just read this, uh, this little text got to get to it. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'll start reading verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserves all acceptance. Uh, for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So he's the Savior of all, especially those who believe. So there's a distinction that Paul's putting in between... The believers, those who, that, would, that would be the elect, those who believe. In, you know, but, but Christ is the Savior of all, especially the elect, those who believe. Um, so there's a way in which Christ is the Savior for the elect, for those who believe. But there are ways in which Christ is the Savior beyond that as well. Right? His saving powers, his, his kind of redemptive, vivifying, life-giving work goes into lots of directions, right? not just to the believers, though principally to believers who are the elect of God. Okay, this is, uh, trying to make... Make some sense. Go with Amy first. can that be um, like after his
1: work
0: on the cross where story found? Satan and he has authority on earth then? Sure. Can he be it could be. Yeah, so that's a good I me repeat it. So there's you know, one one another aspect that you brought up that I didn't get in my notes is the 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 attack on Satan and his works, the binding of Satan, the pushing back of darkness and wickedness and the reign of, of Satan, right? All, that's all bound in with the work of Christ as well. Uh, so it could be something like that that's being talked about here. Um, I didn't bring the First Timothy passage up to tell you what it means. I don't know. But but that, it clearly means there's, there's a work of Christ, and it's there's a specific aspect of it that's for the believers. But there's a broader reality to it, which is all I'm really trying to get across. But go ahead, you got to follow up. Yeah, it seems like, it's a good question. The question is, is demon possession, uh, tied in with this kind of victorious work of Christ such that once he's done working, that it's no longer? And it doesn't seem like that's the case. Currently, after, I mean, Christ's own ministry is enormously impactful as far as exorcisms and healings and things like that. And the apostles as well. And Jesus says, you're going to do more of this than I did. Um, maybe because there are 12 of them. Uh, they're going to do a lot of it. But anyway, they're doing it. And, um, but even by the end of, I think it's the last week, by the end of Paul's ministry, he doesn't have the gifts of healing the way he had them and things like that, or at least manifestly doesn't because he's sending people home sick and can't heal them and where earlier in the the text, even the very shadow of Peter falls on people and they get healed, right? So it seems like there's this really explosive work of Christ and his apostles that push back all that darkness, but there's a lot of darkness all around the world that still is getting pushed back as the gospel goes. So I, I think possession and that sort of thing is still a reality. I don't, I don't have any reason to think it's not. From the scriptures, like say Christ stopped this forever for everyone. No, but he, that's part of what he's doing, is stopping that and, re- and releasing people from that bondage as the gospel gets to them. Um, so that's maybe an answer to it. Bill? Oh, I just. I, mean, I probably didn't hear it right, but it's like I it just drove
2: smack dab into a tree. I, never, I don't usually see the whole forest. And like, what, what was the passage that you quoted that Paul said that. Um, the sa- sa- Savior of all especially and how you're parsing out this how how all is separate from especially like the two separate classes or something?
0: That's kind of what I'm saying. It's 4.10. So First Timothy 4.10 is the text. Um, so here let read that part again. So the, Paul is certainly putting in a distinction here in the work of all people and it, and it could be again a simple thing of like all varieties of people all classes all sorts of people and the the believers among them but Anyway, he says this: um, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So there's a distinction there that I think is at least maybe offers a suggestion for us in different ways in which the Savior is God's Savior of the world, but focused in on the belief, right? Which again I think has the has the. The dog wagging the tail, not the tail wagging the dog on this one. Um, so anyway, th- I'll not say, I think the Calvinism is exactly correct. Christ came to save the elect who would believe because the Holy Spirit would give them faith and so on. Um, but Christ is a greater Savior than just the elect. Right? There's more going on in that work of salvation than just God's people being redeemed, though that is the principal and center part of it. i said that like four times now. Um, good enough. All right, yeah, Darlene. <laughs> Maybe so. And I think that, so the the comment of just what we might call in theological terms, common grace, or maybe there are other terms people use. Most of the time when people say grace, they mean redemptive grace, theologically. That's usually what the word means. And so there are other words that are used, beneficence and things like this, benevolence, uh, to talk about God and just his goodness and how that works into all creation. And, of course, the unbelievers at the end of the day are charged with that as well. Right, that goodness of God that they've rebelled against, and they've received and enjoyed, but still, you know, thrown it back in God's face. So there's there's judgment for that, but at the same time, God's very kind uh, along the way. So then that may be part of what we're talking about here as well. Um, but let's let's keep moving. This is all just by way of introduction. Yeah. Now,
2: just to add on to what Darlene said, is it, the the mercy of God is is it not evident? I mean, our evil in all its forms exists today. Has not been destroyed, yeah. Except for those that are in the process of dying and perishing sure. currently, but here's the earth, and here we are,
0: under our, His merciful hand. Yeah, staying His wrath, long suffering. You bet. Uh, and that's that would be like a Second Peter three nine thing. That, you know, that's what Second Peter three nine is talking about. Is God's slow in bringing His wrath because He wants to redeem His people? All right. That's that's what that text is talking about. So let's get uh, if I'm in the right spot here. One more or two more comments here, quickly. Revelation 3.20. Anyone just know it off the like, top of their head? I saw it on a billboard out here outside of Scapoos. At least it was referenced. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's, that's the text, right? So, um, Ed can read it for us. He's going to pull it up right there. Um, we'll listen to it.
1: Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and I will dine with him and he with me.
0: Okay, good. So that's, um, which of course, as we all know very well, is in a letter to a church, let us see, I think, um, and Christ calling his church to communion, okay? That's not Christ calling the world to communion, though maybe Christ does call the world to communion that way, but that's not what that text is saying, okay? And a a similar one is in, that I want to get before you, is at the the very end of, of Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is, you know, through this whole chapter, just fire and just unleashing against the, uh, against the scribes and the Pharisees, the hypocrites that are binding you know, the people and not letting them see the kingdom. And at the end of this, the very end of it, the last few verses, Oh Jerusalem, where he weeps over Jerusalem, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is saying, how often would I have had your children and protected them? but you won't let it happen. right? And so you look down and say, well, Jesus wants Jerusalem. He wants this, the sons of, uh, of Israel, but they won't. Okay, So that's, again, a, a similar sort of situation to Revelation chapter 3. Um, at least it's similar in this respect. It's God addressing, Christ addressing, the people of God. right? His very own people, not, not, not the whole world. And I think we have just the same situation going on, and I'll bring those two back up later in Ezekiel chapter 18. So flip over to Ezekiel chapter 18. And the last thing to say before we read the text is, what does God call Ezekiel? Son of man, over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Ezekiel. Son of man, son of man. In fact, 81, nope, 93 times he's referred to as the son of man, Ezekiel. And then, by way of connection, what's Jesus call himself most of the time? The son of man. Okay, now that might have to do with Daniel and the Son of Man coming into the heavens. I think it certainly has to do with Ezekiel and the Son of Man and this prophetic burden that Jesus has, that Ezekiel has, that Jeremiah has for the people of God. Um, so we'll keep that more in mind as we as we run. So Ezekiel eighteen, verse twenty three is the verse. I want to get a get a run at it. Um, even this is kind of a short run, but the, the, most of this chapter is kind of repetitive, talking about this issue of whether the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. In other words, are children punished for the sins of their fathers? Are people punished for other people's sins, or are the people kind of stand alone in judgment before God? This is kind of the question being asked. So let's serving in verse 21, and uh, again, it, it's, it is it's somewhat repetitive as we run through the chapter, so this is kind of a good example of it. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right. Uh, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has, for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares, declares the Lord Yahweh, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from the righteousness that he does, and, and does injustice, and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of, the, none of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. For them he shall die. Okay, so we have this, and again, that's, there's a lot of the chapter very much like this. If, if a wicked person stops being wicked and repents, won't he be righteous and live in that righteousness and so on and, and back and forth. But the point here in the middle of it is that verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares Yahweh, and not rather that he should turn... From his way and live. Okay, so God's asking a question here through the prophet: Do I have pleasure in the death of the wicked? Wouldn't I rather have them repent? And again, this the orientation here isn't to the whole world, though. Again, it might be, right? That might be God's attitude toward the whole world that He wants everyone to repent. And He, but that's not what this text is doing. Right? It's talking about Israel and uh, and, and in the issue of judgment and righteousness in Israel. And, but God asked question anyway. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? So what, how does that just kind of let, work on your mind a little bit? How does that go with God doing all things according to His good pleasure? All things occur occur because of the decree of God. He's decreed what will come to pass based upon His good pleasure, what He wants to happen. Right. So it pleases God infinitely the way things shake out because it's entirely His plan. But then He asks this question here: Am I pleased with the death? the wicked. Wouldn't I rather have them turn and come and live? Um, So that's one. Let's read the other one. You might just keep your finger there. And that's in chapter 33. And it's slightly different, but it's it's similar. Chapter 33. I'll start reading at verse 10. Verse 11 is is the pay dirt for us. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, this is what Israel says, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are not, and we are not away because of them. And, oh, rot, sorry. and we wrought away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his, his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to the people: The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses, and uh, for all the wickedness of the wicked, uh, for all the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. That that last part's very similar to chapter eighteen. Same kind of idea there that. that if a righteous person becomes wicked, he'll be judged as wicked. And if a wicked person becomes righteous, he'll live in that righteousness. So very same sort of thing as chapter 18. The difference here is that first question where Israel is saying, Hey, we see that we're wicked. How can we live? How is it that we could have life? And the living God says, by my life. Here, I I'll, 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 I'll want you to live. So go to verse 11 again here. And say to them, as I live, declares Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, just the same as chapter 18. But that the wicked may turn from his way and live, and then this uh, impassioned call to Israel: Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why would you die, O house of Israel? Okay, so this is this is God again calling Israel to repentance. Why would you die? And, and but, but with the, with the same uh, the same reality here, God as swearing by His living self, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's not what I want. I want you to turn and live. So why would you die? And if you can hear that, it sounds just the same as Jesus in Matthew 23, saying, the children of Israel, I'd love to have you. I've tried to get you, but you won't come. Right? That kind of thing. So these were, I think these passages are very similar in, in what they're doing. Ed, yes, there.
1: So I, you may be going here. So are you saying that this is spoken to um, true Israel as a whole? and
0: not to Israel and the individuals that it comprises. Okay, good. So, maybe I'll parse that without answering it first, which is to say, is it possible for a prophet simply to talk to the body of people as the body of people? Say, Israel. Or, is he talking to every single little Israelite out there, nose for nose? I don't know. It's like those are related deals, right? Because the body is made up of its members, and the members make up the body, right? So I think it's possible, and you see plenty of times, I think, from Scripture, where the people of God are addressed as the people of God, right? And in our kind of Calvinistic ways, we want to say, oh, this is for the elect. Right? This, the, he's addressing the elect here, not, not the reprobate. But that's a kind of, I mean, it's a theologically supplied category that sometimes is important and helps, sometimes doesn't help um, to supply that category. Where here, clearly, it's, it's, it's Israel who knows that it's sinful. Israel saying, "I know I'm wicked. Right? We're wicked. How can we live?" And God says, "Why would you die?" Right? So He addresses the house of Israel in toto. Um, so my sense of it is, when the prophet's speaking to the body, He's speaking to speak the body. The, the 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 people in the body will respond as God works in them to do, giving them faith and giving them repentance, or not, pardoning them under the ministry as well.
1: So is this the future? Because oh, I mean, you. They, they never they have it as a body or. And, but there are some individually, but they haven't as a body turned. Totally. as we refer in Romans that you know, all Israel will be saved. But sure. Is that, the, is that the same turning that we see this? That's a good question. So I
0: don't know if this is a prophesied turning as such, as much as a call to repentance. Right? A call to the body to repent and, and turn, right?
1: But he's saying this is what he desires. God's going to make happen what he desires. Okay, yeah. So, and he has it. We don't
0: good. see it happen. So that's, that's good. And uh, just that idea that God will make come to pass what he desires, what he wants, I think we can also, yeah, absolutely, the case. Um, however, in the words of the prophets, that is to say how God puts words in the mouth of the prophets, sometimes I think he says things in ways that we are not to take entirely literally or you're just kind of grab. Well, one, one, one example of this would be the phraseology of uh, this is the worst judgment that ever has been from the beginning of the world and, and until the end. Well, they've had a few of those in the Bible, right? And so you start thinking, well, either it's literally the worst judgment that ever has been, literally that's what's being said, or that's a prophetic way of saying this is tied in with the judgment of God, he's unleashing his wrath the way he has in these days of wrath before, right? In other words, there are ways prophets talk in the scriptures that you got to get clued into and if you're not clued into it, you take them wrong, right? You take, you, and usually for us, it's literal, because of dispensationalism and so on. We take them literally um, and make, make nonsense of them. I kind of think this way of calling to repentance is a little bit like that, where if God says he doesn't desire the death of the wicked, well, the death of the wicked occurs. So I don't think we're talking about God and his like, d- decree, and, and, and I think we're talking about God talking to his people, right? the way God addresses his people and pleads with them. Right? Just like uh, I think a faithful minister would plead with the people, come in the name of God, come, right? Uh, it's not like God's up there kind of detached, you know, just organizing things. He presents himself as engaged, not only engaged at the point of the incarnation, so all in, uh, all the way into death, but to call the people back, to stir them up and say, come, come love me. Quit loving your idols, quit loving your sin, come love the living God. And he extends himself out that way. That's kind of the prophetic ministry. Uh, So that's kind of how I take these passages. There's a call to repentance to the people of God, um, an impassioned one, a pleading one from God, that they would come. Um, And even to the point where he says, I don't want you to die. That's not what I'm into. Uh, I uh, I want you to live. Not on this decree level, because whatever God wants that way will come to pass. But this is more in a ministry and prophetic level of calling people back, calling the body back. I don't know if that kind of, if that... Setup makes sense or helps you kind of hang on to it or get, or get a hold of all. Because the point here is not to, like, explain away these passages. It's to understand them. Okay, that's the important thing. We, we'll accuse our Armenian friends of saying, yeah, well, you just read through Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 or any number of umpteen other texts just to explain them away. And that's often true. They're just trying to get them out of the way so they can kind of keep this theology they have, right, instead of letting those texts destroy that theology and reform it into something else. We don't want to be guilty of that. Doug Wilson has this nice tagline: No problem texts, no problem texts. We want them all. We want to understand every every Bible passage and what it means. What does it mean when God says this? Not how can I explain the way and still stand there as an Augustinian, right? That's not the important part. The important part is what God's saying here. And let me close with a few questions that you might have and a couple observations. Let me do these and then I'll take questions. So first of all, all these passages, and that goes from. Revelation, to Matthew 23, to these two passages in Ezekiel, and plenty of others probably if we can pull them together, are addressed to God's people. God calling his people to the standard of the covenant and the holiness that he calls them to in the covenant. It's not his orientation to the world. Right? Again, it might be, I don't think it is, I don't think that's a faithful way to understand all of Scripture, but if you're going to read these passages and understand them on their own merits, you have to understand at least this, that it's God, through the prophets, talking to his own people. He's not addressing the world. And you think of like a John 17 situation where God, Jesus prays specifically for his disciples and their followers, but not for the world. Okay? And he says that. I don't pray for the world, I do pray for these so we recognize that God handles his people differently than he handles and addresses the rest of the world. Even though in the New Covenant he addresses the whole world and says, come on in. Come on in. But unless they're in, they're not in. Unless they're in the covenant, they're outside the covenant. And God addresses those inside the covenant one way and those outside in other ways. Okay, so that's, that's kind of an important factor to have in mind because like people lift that Revelation text out and say, it's an evangelistic text. God's knocking at your heart. Won't you open the door of your heart, sinner, and let him in? Uh, but that's not what it means, right? Simply not what it means. It's just misused because it's convenient from that mindset of evangelism, particularly Arminianism, where you got a little door you can open for Jesus and he can come in, right? Um, so, um, yeah, so all of these are addressed to God's people, not to the world of sinners. God is the living God. He is life. Okay? He is life. He doesn't have life, He is life. And he has extended himself as the living God into the sinful, wicked world to bring life through Jesus Christ, his Son. He's committed to bringing life. That's what he's all about. And so he's calling his people to repentance. It's not surprising to find that. So I don't want you to die. Right? I didn't make covenant with you to kill you. I didn't make covenant with you to further condemn you. I made covenant with you to draw you out of that wickedness and sin and bring you to myself that you should be holy even as I am holy. And finally, the pleading God, uh, however God, however this works, it is God pleading with people. It's God uh, calling them from, from their minds and their hearts and all the whole package saying, "Come, right the, So God, through the prophets and particularly through Jesus, pleads with us to come, calls us to come. But the problem is, just like Israel, we would not, we will not. Right? So then of course, God has to overcome that in us as well, and that's one of those happy, happy five points of Calvinism. The irresistible grace, where God not just has it planned, has worked it in Christ, but actually changes us to call us out of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. Let me read one thing from Luke 19, and then I'll uh, take a couple questions and close with a Luther quote. This one that stuck with me for years from, I think, the bondage of the will. The first time I read that back in college, I remember a particular comment that Luther had around these, in Matthew 23 in particular. Um, We'll get there. Luke 19, I just want this to balance what what God's saying here through the prophet in Ezekiel. So this is the the parable of the ten minas here. uh, I'll just read the last part of it, you'll get the idea. Okay, verse 24, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And I tell you to everyone who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's kind of a hard one, anyway. And then it gets even harder. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Put them to death in front of me. That's something a king would do, right? My enemies need to be put to death. I want to watch it, and my whole whole entourage, the king's going to watch it. This is what happens to my enemies, right? Um, So that's Jesus talking about the judgment of the enemies of God, um, and uh, it doesn't sound the same as, why would you perish, and would you please come? Right? Now, now is the time for that coming. When the judgment comes, that time is over. Right? And that's exactly the time the reprobate will wish to cry out, wish for the rocks to cover them. They can bury themselves in a hole, but the time for repentance will be over. And that's when the Son of Man says, bring my enemies out to me, and slaughter them before me. Okay, so these things, I think, all have to kind of be brought together to understand these passages. And just, just to grab out of Ezekiel 18 or 33, say, see, look, God doesn't want anyone to perish. Or Second or Peter 3, 9, just the same thing. And say, that's, that's the definitive text in the Bible to understand God's relationship to all people. It is very foolish and very juvenile as far as understanding the Bible, but it's pretty common. That's pretty commonly how people address it. Like Second Peter 3, 9b is the answer to everything, and of course it's misunderstood from the, from the word go. But I don't know here that these Ezekiel passages have that same misunderstanding. I think it's something closer to the heart of God calling his people that we need to know about God, not just, not just the decrees of God and the, the five points of Calvinism, but this working covenant reality of God and his people. And here's the last thing, and I'll take a question. Um, so Luther's asking, well, how can these things go together? How can you have the decree of God that the, his enemies will, uh, will be, will be eternally punished by his decree that pleases him? And yet at the same time, those same enemies that turn over Jesus to death that he weeps over going, you know, before it, 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 Matthew 23, of Jerusalem. And Luther's answer to it, which I think is a good place to start, is it's within God both to decree his just wrath and to weep over it. That's all within God. How that all works, it's like, well, maybe we can figure it out and it, maybe in eternity we'll get some good insights on how to figure it out. But clearly it's all within God to do that. And I think that's a, a, a good place to stand say, okay, well, we don't need to deny these passages where Christ is weeping over Jerusalem and, and Ezekiel's you know, crying out and Jeremiah's weeping over Jerusalem back in the day. Um, sure, that's, that's part of God weeping over this thing, yet at the same time he's the one who's decreed it. So how does that work? Let God be God. We're just we're just little peons, and we'll do what we're told, and, and believe how God has given us to believe in the Scriptures, and that's all in there, all right? So anyway, that's that's something I think for us to kind of maybe at the end of this long series uh, to even out a little bit to say there's there's more than just the salvation of the elect in the work of Christ. It encompasses a lot of things, and there is room in there to kind of understand maybe different aspects of what Christ is doing, but never to lose the focus on the reality that the elect is what God has chosen to do from all eternity and send his son to redeem and all this. That's the centerpiece of the redemption of Christ, but there are many dimensions of it. Okay. Any final questions? Everyone over here? Well, or comments? Just yeah.
2: the, uh, the fear and trembling that we should all experience and practice and be careful of and that we have a, a body of believers to meet before and we have a, a, a called pastor we believe in the Holy Spirit who has given us life and uh, not be led astray and not go off on our own in a home church or some other, or I don't go to church because I don't believe anybody blah, 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 and all that stuff. And, and the, the benefit of the, it's like, it's like being fed. We're fed by your brother and pastor and, and, and the, the, Amount out of the library, as the scriptures saying, I can't recall the verse. You couldn't contain all the books. You just take just what you've discussed and, and draw it all out and try to understand it. Well, it, It's food for God and food for our spirits. We can't consume it all.
0: You bet. No Good. Well, you're welcome for feeding. That's what God's called me to do. And, and I hope that this the whole thing feeds you, right? The, the sovereignty of God and the absolute majesty of God revealed in it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Um. Okay, God should be overwhelming. He's God, um, yet you know He's revealed us, these things to us and to our children that we should obey Him and keep His commandments. And so there's this, you know, this lifting up God before you in Christ, but then saying, okay, be, be in awe, be amazed by God. Now shake it off and get back to work, right? That uh, so anyway, hopefully that this series has had some of that, um, where you can kind of marvel at God and sometimes be in fear of God, just abject fear. This amazing being. And yet he comes so close to us. And, and the, the, the point of all of this is he's come in Christ Jesus. Right? He's, 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 he's come to us, to be one of us. That's how committed God is to us, uh, to his people, and to the salvation of the world. Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah, Debbie. Just, um, I've kind of been studying
1: about the, you know, it's taken me a while to get my head around for a long time, you know, about how this all works, you know. And I think about, like, the wheat and the hairs you know. We're, there's always this tension of you know good and evil kind of not equal right but we kind of raise that to get wheat that I was reading about the parable of the net you know how he throws out and gathers mm-hmm. and then he start you know he starts dividing so it's just kind of a reality of our life now on earth and, yeah you know, the-
0: and, and the ministry of the church right that that's yeah. you know we're we're the elect of God that's the people of God. Um, yeah, we're each called to make our calling and election sure, right? And and those who laugh that off and move right along, um, those will be the fish that are tossed out of that. Right? Those will be the tares taken up and burned. Um, even though you know, it feels the world there, but nonetheless, the idea is the same. That you know, God calls us to serious contemplation and thought and prayer and devotion to Him, and uh, that's our call as Christians. And He's the one who supplies the grace for us to do that. So let's let's seek His. Uh, his grace as we wrap this particular series up and move on let's, let's have a word of prayer as we close